I know, it's been a long time since the last edition. But if you've been following along on the blog and the Facebook page, you'll know that I've been traveling on an extended joy trip. I just got back. Over the past several weeks of summer, I've been conducting interviews and collecting stories about people and institutions hard at work at making the world a better place. I know that sounds like hyperbole or so vague that it sounds almost meaningless, but there's really no other way for me to describe the people, the athletes, the artists, the activists who find their way on this show. Yeah, I know we talk a lot about climbing mountains or making movies about people who climb mountains or base jumping or whatever. The point is, these people work hard at protecting the planet and improving the lives of others by being actively engaged in the world in which they live. Through their stories about their adventures, they stand as an example of how each of us can make a difference in the course of our own lives and perhaps do some good. A few weeks ago, I was at the Mountain Film Festival in Telluride, Colorado. And if you've ever been, you know that this annual celebration of adventure culture through cinema is about a lot more than high-altitude thrill rides and adrenaline-induced mayhem. The collected speakers, authors, and filmmakers give us a look from their perspective into the many complex questions of life. One of the presenters and judge in the film competition was the actress Anna DeVere Smith. And while she's not a climber or a skier or any type of outdoor professional, through the power of her storytelling, she has the ability to show us a glimpse into the lives of others who ponder these same questions. Here's a short scene from her one-woman play called Let Me Down Easy. So I asked him about, you know, what is life and what is death? A couple of easy questions. Well, life is a... That's one I'd rather leave to the molecular biologists or microbiologists. It is. It's obviously it is the property of entities, concrete entities with boundaries that have a run and hold at equilibrium, certain processes that collect energy and materials and from that create similar very complex boundaries. Now that's a roundabout way of may not we may not have a way of defining. In other words, we might not ever have a bone bone. It's not highly metaphorical. Anyway, the fine In this monologue, Miss Smith plays the part of a Harvard professor exploring intellectually the meaning of life. As part of her research to develop characters for Let Me Down Easy, she interviewed a number of people, 340 of them, at the Yale School of Medicine. Now, many of these people are facing their own mortality as they navigate their way through the American healthcare system. Now, this isn't the kind of story I usually do on the project, but I felt this particular presentation is important because those of us who lead healthy, downright, vigorous, active lives probably never really think about how people in our community, people you probably know, deal with chronic illness. And I'm sure few enough of us realize how much courage it takes to stare death in the face when retreat is not an option. I'm James Mills, and you're listening to The Joy Trip Project.
invited to the Yale School of Medicine to create um, a project where I interviewed doctors and patients, and then uh, they wanted me to perform it at medical grand rounds. And uh, that was the beginning of this play. It became the beginning of the play, Let Me Down Easy. And years later, one of the doctors uh, asked me to interview one of his patients who had, um, uh, who had, uh, was refusing dialysis. So, so what you're going to see now is a transition, her, and a transition between her and another person. So this is Hazel Merritt, who uh, I just told you about. She's a licensed ordained evangelist. Well, I was in pretty good health until 1989 when I got diagnosed with diabetes and now they're talking about my kidneys and the word kidney was a very, very bad thing to hear. When he said that, your kidneys are, um, are pretty bad and somewhere along the line, not right now, maybe one to two, maybe one to two years or a year, whatever he said, I can't exa exactly say when you will need dialysis, he says. You will need dialysis, he says, because kidneys, you know, they're just not going to repair themselves and you will, will have to have it. And I says, dialysis? <gasps> I'm not having any dialysis. I'm not having dialysis, Dr. Rashtikar. And he said, well, let's don't, you know, just talk about it right now to that extent. Let's just see how everything goes. But eventually you will, will have to have it. And that was very, very devastating that I had actually reached the point that I had to have dialysis. And I respected him. I did. He's a very good doctor. But I just had to grab a hold of faith. I just had to grab a hold to a higher power. And at the time, I had a lot to say, and I told him about how my husband had died of renal failure, and I told him about my daughter who had renal failure, and my, well, my daughter had a different problem. My daughter was, um, my daughter was smart. She was smart. She was, she was, she was a very smart, matter of fact, she wanted to be a brain surgeon, so she was smart. But she had more or less got out of the world and got tied up with a bad group of people and she got the virus, you know, she had dated a fellow who was evidently infected and she didn't know it and she got the virus, you know, and it was, wasn't intravenously, it was sexually and I had some bad, bad experiences with my daughter when my daughter went for her dialysis but didn't happen here at Yale, <laughs> but it did happen at another hospital in New Haven, St. Ray Fields, where my daughter went for her dialysis and they hooked her up to the machine and the nurses went down the other end of the hallway and left her in a room hooked up to this machine and I sat there with her and something happened. The thing came loose and the blood went all over the whole room, all in my daughter's hair, all on her face and I went running down the hall trying to find a nurse and I couldn't find a nurse. I looked in rooms, I was calling for help, and nobody came for at least like about, I'd say every bit of about three to five minutes or five minutes, it was a long time, and the blood just kept coming out and coming out from the thing, and my daughter was just screaming, and the blood was all in her hair, it was all on her face, it was all on her jeans, you know, it was all over, it had gotten on me, and it was squirting all over, and it was like a nightmare. And so finally, when they come in, they put a sheet on top of her, on top of all the blood, and unhook her from the machine and, and everything, and then tell me, well, I can bring her back another day. You know, you know, that she's soaking wet with blood, they'll do the dialysis another day, 
I can bring her back another day. And I said, okay. So they just put a sheet around my daughter, a sheet around my daughter. I didn't have a car at that time. Well, I had a car, but car was in the shop. And we had to wrap her up in a sheet with the blood going through the sheet and whatnot and put her in a taxi and bring her home. So that made me have like a real bad, bad feeling about nurses and um, doctors and how could they just do this? And they, um, and I'm not just saying it because it was my daughter, but my daughter was a beautiful girl. And uh, she died. So I'm not having any dialysis. That bedrock of care was there for me. I'm not saying it's there for every patient, as we talked about. I'm in a pretty unique position, but despite that unique position, I certainly had to look out for myself and make sure that things were done in a way that I thought they should be done. I had a surgeon and an oncologist, a group of doctors and nurses down in the oncology unit, a, a radiation, a therapeutic radiologist down in the radiation therapy unit, all of whom gave me as much time as I needed to go through as many questions as I had and to otherwise be as supportive as I felt I needed at the time. They gave me home numbers, which I never would have used and didn't only call Barbara when I had a certain fever she wouldn't know about. Whenever I talked to them, I felt that no question was stupid. Um, but I have come to learn enough about the healthcare system that while I think that doctors and nurses and institutions, even as wonderful as Yale is, uh, make mistakes, have their attention diverted to other important tasks, and can't be there in every way you want them to be there. As much faith as you have in this place, every time they give you chemotherapy. I had a friend there with me uh, to make sure that that bag with that stuff in there, that chemotherapy in there, that they were about to pump into me was exactly what I was supposed to get. No more and the right stuff. Uh, I will also tell you that on the last, well, <laughs> throughout the protocol, uh, if your temperature went above 102, I'm sorry, 101.2, they want you to call. And if it went high enough, they want you to come into the hospital, you know, to make sure that nothing was wrong. And mine at one point had gone up to 102. And they admit you immediately to the oncology uh, clinic. And an oncology fellow, who was not one of our full-time faculty, but uh, just someone who is um, in training here, specializing in ecology, came into my room. I want to apologize, but we can't find your records. Uh, could you tell me what kind of cancer you have? I said, this is appalling. He said, no, hey, it's not just you. That happens here quite a bit. I said, I am appalled for every patient who comes on this unit. And I had to go through from like the beginning my whole story. Eventually, I'll tell you, I'll tell you as a side, eventually I knew, I knew, I could tell by his questions that he was going to get to the question of, do you work? And uh, I've never advertised my position around here, so I want to be treated like everybody else. And so he says, you know, do you work? Like midway through his questions, I said, I do. He said, uh, are you working full time? I said, I am. He said, where are you working? I said, I'm associate dean at the medical school. <laughs> now he looks up. Now he looks up. He said, at this medical school? I said, the Yale School of Medicine. He found my bias within a half an hour. <laughs> Anna DeVere Smith, 
recorded at the Mountain Film Festival in Telluride, Colorado. If you've got health care, don't take it for granted. Support legislation that makes affordable health care available to everyone in the United States. The one-woman show, Let Me Down Easy, appeared off-Broadway in 2009. Learn more about the actress and her current projects online at AnnaDeVereSmithWorks.org. This edition of the Joy Trip Project is dedicated to the memory of public radio producer Carolyn Jensen Chadwick, who passed away as this piece was in production. She and her husband, Alex Chadwick, the producers of National Geographic Radio Expeditions on NPR, inspired the creation of this program, and for that we will always be grateful. For the Joy Trip Project, this is James Mills. Music this week by Chad Ferran and Chris Isaacs. The Joy Trip Project is brought to you thanks to the generous support of our sponsor, Patagonia, makers of fine outdoor clothing. I'm thrilled to report that they've signed on for another year of support, so again, thank you. Find them online at patagonia.com. Thanks for listening, but you know, we want to hear from you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word by posting a link to it on your Facebook page or send us out as a tweet to your followers on Twitter. Post your comments to the Joy Trip Project blog or send us an email at info at joytripproject.com. Share your stories. Share your passion for outdoor recreation, environmental conservation, acts of charitable giving, and practices of sustainable living. And you just might inspire our next Joy Trip together. But most of all, don't forget to tell your friends. Until next time, take care. <laughs>